All right, if you got a Bible, open it up to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, we have officially gone through two chapters of the gospel according to John. If you were here on Easter, we closed out the second chapter. And if you weren't here, then you can go back and watch that. Uh, we shared a message on, or shared some pictures this last week on uh, Instagram and social media uh, about when I was flipping over the tables and just one photo just kind of captured it amazingly. Like I'm flipping it over and things are flying. And I thought, man, someone should caption this. Like what caption would you put with this one? And that was an incredible, incredible message, even in my own life and God speaking to us. And, and that is really the whole story of the gospel of John, how God wants to turn over the tables in our life and institutes an entirely new system, an entirely new way to get to God. Now, not through the temple, not through the practice of going to a place, but the practice of going to a person and coming through a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. And that's what the entire gospel of John is about. And in fact, we saw this at the very beginning of the gospel where John gives us in John chapter 20, the whole purpose of why he wrote this gospel is for us to believe in Jesus. And so that's why we're going through this gospel. We want you to believe in Jesus and we want you to have a greater belief in who Jesus is because if there's anything that we need in our life and in the world today, it is to know that there is someone in charge and his name is Jesus. And he is working all things together for our good, like Romans 8, 28 says, even though we can't see it, and we can't understand it. So that's why we're going through this gospel, just kind of going through it as we have been, and now we're in chapter three. In chapter three, if we were doing some type of uh, straw poll, if you will, of the greatest verses in the Bible or the greatest chapters in the Bible, uh, although they're all great, don't hear me saying that I'm not saying that they're not all great, they are, but... Some chapters obviously just, just pack a punch in, in a way like Romans chapter 8. If you were here during our Romans series, Romans chapter 8 has been called arguably the greatest chapter in the Bible. But if we were doing a poll, I would say John chapter 3 is right up there. In fact, it arguably has the greatest verse in the Bible, John chapter 3 verse 16. But we're not going to do that one this week. In fact, we'll kick it off next week with John chapter 3 verse 16. I can't wait to do that. But today what we're going to do is John chapter 3 verses 1 through 15. All right. And it's a very familiar story. If you, again, if you've been around church before, it's where Jesus has a conversation with a dude named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a religious person. And, and remember, this is why I kind of started the message talking about what we talked about on Easter, the temple where Jesus turned over those tables. Now we're going to see Jesus having some specific conversations over the next several chapters with people where he is overturning the tables in their life. And it's interesting that John lays out right after Jesus throws over the, temples, uh, the tables in the temple, now he shows us Jesus having a conversation with a guy whose entire system of belief was set up at the temple, whose entire life was set up by how he arranged and helped arrange for others the religious gatherings at the temple. He was a Pharisee. So let's jump in, John chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Again, this kind of set up the context for it before we get into the meat of it. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees, like I was just telling you, named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we, the Pharisees, know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So again, that's kind of context of the conversation. 
Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and there were different religious rulers of the day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Pharisees, again, had a lot of responsibility and authority when it came to the temple worship, when it came to people going to the temple to meet with God. Remember, this story comes right after when they were there for Passover. So Jesus is doing signs. He's doing miracles. He turns over the tables, right? So Nicodemus comes to him and is like, we don't know who you are, but we know you somebody. Because if, if you're doing these miracles, if you're doing, he, he uses the plural word signs, which means it was more than one. It's like you're doing these signs, you have to have some type of power. You have to have some type of ability. I mean, obviously you are someone who is sent from God or has some, some type of power, some type of supernatural ability, because no one that is doing these things can be doing these things without God. So Nicodemus comes to him and he has some, some questions and you're going to, I'll mention Nicodemus throughout this gospel because we'll see him again in chapter seven, then we'll see him again at the end. But at this point in time in Nicodemus's life, he has questions, but his questions, we don't really know how genuine they are in the sense of like, does he really want to figure out who Jesus is because he sees the signs and like others, he wants to believe in him or he wants to just learn enough about who he is so that he can write him off. And it's interesting because it says he comes to Jesus at night. Now, there's a couple of theories as to why he does this at night. One is that a lot of times the Pharisees, the rabbis, the teachers, they would study into the night. And so the theory is, is they were studying and having a conversation about who this dude is. And then he goes, you know, after they're having this conversation to Jesus at night, which is, that's probably Okay, but, but symbolically here, it's interesting that he comes at night because John, the writer of this gospel, likes to contrast the darkness to the light. You're going to see that quite often. He did it in chapter one. He'll come back to it even in chapter three. So metaphorically, Nicodemus is coming to Jesus, not only at the physical nighttime, but he's also coming to Jesus in the dark, meaning he symbolically represents the unbelief. He comes to Jesus at night and he's asking a question, but Jesus is going to dig deeper into even the question that Nicodemus asked because he really didn't even ask a question. He was trying to like, you know, getting at it, like, who are you? And what Jesus is going to see is the reason why you can't see who I am is because even though you came to me in the physical night, you're actually living in spiritual night. You're actually living in darkness, and that's why you don't know who I am. Look at how Jesus answers to kind of back this point up. Verse 3, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can it be, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? See, notice how Jesus goes right to the heart of the matter. And this is where when you're dealing with Jesus, you got to understand something. When you're searching Jesus out, again, maybe you're new to Jesus or maybe you've been following Jesus. And if you haven't figured this out yet about Jesus, then you will figure this out. Jesus is always going to go deeper than the questions you're asking. Jesus is always going to dig in more than even maybe you want to. 
And this is the part when I first started following Jesus, no one ever really explained to me how ruthless Jesus was. And by ruthless, I mean loving. I might come to Jesus in a prayer and Jesus is going to go deeper than what I was. I was like, I wasn't asking that, Lord. I just wanted to know why I lost my job. I just wanted to know why this bad thing happened. I, I just wanted to know this, or I just, hey, I just needed you to handle this thing. I just needed you to fix this thing. And Jesus goes deeper. But this is why I hope you learn to love Jesus, because he's always going to get at a bigger problem than the one that you can see. He's always going to go into further an issue than what you think the issue is. See, Nicodemus comes to him and says, we just don't know who you are. Who are you? It's in essence what he's asking. We, he says, we know you're a teacher, come from God. But what we don't know is who are you? And Jesus answers him, well, the reason why you don't know who I am is because you're, you're living in the dark because you haven't been born again. Now, the reason why this is important, again, we'll pick it up later as we see the story of Nicodemus as we go on. Eventually, Nicodemus is going to understand this. And eventually, God is going to solve Nicodemus's greatest problem, which was his blindness, his darkness, the, the level to which he was living his life in a spiritual night. But let's break down what Jesus is saying here as it applies to all of us. He says, unless you are born again. Now, this word here means to generate. Literally, the word born means to generate. It's the same idea in a Hebrew sense of the word genesis. That's why they sound very similar to each other. But this is in Greek. So it means to generate, to birth, or to the, the old scriptures. And if you, depending if you memorize um, the scriptures in K, uh, the King James Version, and we'll get into verse 16, God's only begotten son. We don't use that word anymore uh, as you know, kind of language has progressed, but that's the idea. To be born is to beget. It's to make someone alive. And so Jesus says here to Nicodemus, the reason why you can't see and understand who I am is because you've only been born once. You have, you've only been made alive once. You haven't been made alive again. Now, naturally, Nicodemus responds back with Jesus with, again, an honest question. What? How, how can that be? How, how can, I mean, I'm an old dude. How can I go back into my mother's womb and start this whole process over again? That's impossible, Jesus. But don't you know, Jesus, again, is always talking on deeper levels. But let's think about this question. Because I, I think Nicodemus is question here really helps us understand how we think as humans. How, how Nicodemus is thinking is, oh, you're saying I need to start over again. I need a new, I, I should have done this again. I should have done this differently. So let me say it to you like this. How many wish you could go back over at the beginning and start over? If you're not raising your hand, you're probably lying. I mean, how many of us wish Man, I, I wish I could do that over. In golf, we call it a mulligan, right? Now, I say we, not in the sense that I'm a golfer, because my entire golf game is a mulligan. <laughs> in fact, 
I want you to understand, if you were ever have the privilege and honor of playing golf with me, here's how I treat golf. I paid to be there. I'm going to hit as many balls as I like. I don't care about your little scorecard. I could care less. If it's 127, if I hit it out of bounds, I'm not going to go get it. I'm going to put another one right there and hit it again. That's how I play, right? Mulligan. Now think about it. Here's the problem with golf and life when it comes to a do-over or a mulligan. So when I'm playing golf and I, and I hit a swing, and whether it's a slice or a hook, you call it whatever you want, it's just bad. When, I get a, when it goes to the right into the woods and I got to start over, here's the problem. Yeah, I got to start over, but I'm still dealing with the same equipment. I'm still dealing with the same faulty swing. We say it too late. I'm still dealing with the failed abilities of playing golf. That's the problem with a do-over. Is yeah, you could give me a do-over, but it's not Tiger hitting it this time. It's Jason. Right? I'll never forget. I was a caddy one time. There was a pretty famous tournament that happened in East Texas every year, and I got to be uh, not a caddy. Sorry, let me clarify. I got to be the dude holding the signs with the names on it. All right. And so, um, there's a, and the pros came in and Paul Azinger and several different pros were there at the time. And I got to watch him swing. And amazingly, Troy Aikman, the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys, one of my childhood heroes was in my group because the dude putting this on was uh, one of my friends, his dad. And so they needed all these guys to hold these signs. I'm like, put me in Troy Aikman's group. And Troy hates hitting with drivers. He hates it. He would always hit with just his irons. And I mean, he was a big dude. Very, I mean, he was playing it this time. This was in the 90s. And so they were like, hey, Troy, pull out a, uh, pull out a, a driver here on this hole. And I kid you not, big old dude, athletic, pulls out a driver and he shanks it as far as, I mean, you couldn't even see it. It was so bad. And he got so mad that he let somebody talk him into hitting a driver that, I mean, he was like upset for the rest of the round and he just kept using his irons because he stunk. And, and I had a little bit of relief. I'm like, all right, if you're an incredible NFL quarterback and you stink at this game too, there's hope for me. <laughs> but the idea of it is this, the problem is no matter how many chances we get some, uh, uh, to do something over, even in doing it over, we're still dealing with us who messed it up the first time. So Nicodemus's thought process here of like, I can't go back to my mother's womb and start this thing over. He's correct. He can't. But a deeper level that Jesus is hitting at is Nicodemus, even if you could, you'd still fail. Because what you're dealing with here is not just you messed up the first time, but you would mess up the second time, the third time. You would mess up every time. Because your problem goes deeper than just simply you need a second chance. You need a second birth. See, Jesus goes further. Look at this. He said, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you. He says it again. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. See, Jesus says it again, but goes deeper. Notice he uses the word cannot. 
Now, you don't have to be really smart in literature to understand the word cannot. What does it mean? You can't. You know, two, two words, depending upon how you can't is one, cannot. Then we just, I think we just put it into one word because we're like, listen, we, know, we can't, we cannot. Literally, the Greek word here is you are not able to. You are insufficient to meet the task. That's the point of why a mulligan is not what you really need. Yes, you need a second chance, but you also need a second birth or you'll fail the second chance. And this is where most people in our society today fail to get to a deeper level in the sense of they don't understand that what you need is actually more than a second chance. You need a second you. And that's what Jesus is getting at. He says, unless, cannot. Well, what's the unless here? Born again. See, this phrase here again can mean two things. It can mean a second time, but it also can mean from above. That's what's very interesting. The word again can mean a second time, just like it means on the surface, or it can mean born of above. And you say, which one is it? I would say, yes. It is a second time, but it's also a different type. See, that's what Jesus says. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. Like begets like. Remember the word born begets. So what I'm saying is this. I can teach you what I know, but I'm going to reproduce what I am. Let me say it to you like this. Have you ever had a, a conversation with your children where, now this is true even if it's biological or your child is adopted, but it might hit home a little bit more in one level on a personal sense if your child is a biological child in that you're saying, why are you doing that? Why are you acting like that? There's been so many times where the Holy Spirit has said the reason why he's acting like that is because he's your kid. <laughs> he got that from you. But again, even if you have an adoptive child like we do, and having a conversation with her, it's like, why are you acting like that? Because she got it naturally. Because like begets like. Flesh begets flesh. Anytime you are looking at your children and you are thinking, why are you acting like that? The answer is because of you. They inherited that from you. They learned it from you. They saw it in you. That's why they're acting like that. Why? Because flesh gives birth to flesh. Not just in a physical sense, but in a mindset sense and how you think, your, your abilities, your proclivities, your temptations, what you think, how you live, how you act, all of that comes from your first birth. So the reason why Jesus is saying that you need to be born again, he's saying, listen, no matter how many mulligans or do-over you get, you, all you have is flesh. And flesh, as Roman says, is just going to give birth to death every time. So you need a different kind of birth. You need to be born again. But this one is not just a second one. It is from someplace else. 
It is from someone else, not from your parents, not from your, as the Bible traces sin through the fathers, because Adam was the one who was responsible in the beginning, not from your earthly father, but you need a new birth from a heavenly father. You need to be born again a second time from above. And unless that happens, you cannot see. And then Jesus uses a different word here. He says, you cannot enter. You can't enter because you can't see. And you can't see because you have not been born from above. So this is the whole conversation that Jesus is having. And, and people have looked at this and say, okay, what are you getting at here, Jesus? These two births, particularly when he says here, born again of water and the spirit. Little, little side note here. You, you know, I, I teach from the ESV because it's one of the more accurate English translations that we have today, and I really like it. But this translation does a bad job here of this specific sentence of water and the spirit and then capitalizing the S because in the Greek, the V, the definite article is not there. And I don't think the S should be capitalized because it makes it sound like he's saying born of water. Like that's when you were born the first time and then born of the spirit. That's when you're born the second time. But I don't, I don't think that's what John is getting at here because John, I think is rightly picking up on a verse from the old Testament in Ezekiel chapter 36, well, I'll show you in just a second. So it should read like this, born of water and spirit. And the idea here is simply, you need to be cleansed by having a new spirit. Now let's go to Ezekiel chapter 36. You don't have to turn there. You might just want to write it down as a reference. And I do have it on the screen, verse 25 through 27. Listen to what God says. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. So in that verse right there, you connect the water and the spirit idea, because water represented cleansing. But the emphasis of what Jesus is saying here is a water cleansing is not enough. A water cleansing is only symbolic to having a new spirit. And this is exactly what God said he would do. Look, it goes further. He says, and I will remove the heart of stone from your, your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, I love this. And I will put my spirit. Now this is capital S on purpose here. I will put my spirit within you. Now listen to this phrase and cause you to walk cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you see the difference? See, Christianity goes beyond self-help. Because even if you got a second chance, you're still dealing with the same spirit. Even if you got a second chance, you're still dealing with the same you, the same self. And the same self is so broken that even with new knowledge, you'll still do the same jacked up things. Have you realized that yet? This is why more often than not, you don't need new information. You have way more information. Let me say it to you like this. You already know more than what you're currently obeying. So why would you think more knowledge would be good when, the, when you get that knowledge, you're not going to obey it either. 
So more information is not what you need. You need transformation. And transformation comes when you're born again a second time from above when God puts his spirit in you. And when he puts his spirit in you, now he said in verse 27, he causes you. Here's what that means. He enables you to do now what you could have never done without him. And this is why I say this often, and it's bad English. I know, but it's great theology. The gospel is far gooder than you ever thought. See, most people, remember, we're two weeks out from Easter. Most people think that the story of Easter, that the Christian message is, yes, Jesus died and made a way for you to get to God. Now, in light of that, you better get busy being good. So they think, thank you, Jesus, for getting me out of hell and into heaven. Now I'm going to go live my life for you. Here's the problem. You can't do that. So when I say the gospel is far gooder, what I'm saying is that is only half the message of the gospel. And what I mean by that is this. I'm not saying that we are not saved by simply the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Yes. That is when we are justified, we are made right with God. But the reason why the gospel is far gooder is it's not just he now made a way for us to get to him, but he also, through that, enables us to obey him how we couldn't have before. And he does that through his spirit. So you have a lot of people, me, for the first decade of my Christian life, I knew I was a Christian, but I was completely denying the fact that God had also given me his spirit to enable me to do what I couldn't do. So let me say it to you like this. I was trying to obey without the spirit. I was trying to obey by my flesh. I was trying to obey just by working harder. And you say, well, is it opposed to hard work? No, it's not opposed to hard work. Paul says it best. I did it, but it was Christ in me who was doing it. So there's a recognition of, I can't obey this, but Jesus made a way and gave me his spirit. So that's the gospel. Jesus made a way and gave me his spirit. And his spirit is the one now who caused me to be born again and the one who enables me to do what I couldn't do, i.e., to use the golf analogy, actually hit it straight actually obey straight, actually live a lined up life. See, that's why Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, your problem is far worse. And the good news is, is God said it in the Old Testament. This is what he was going to do. And now Jesus is picking up on that and saying, that's what I'm here to do. Now look at Nicodemus's response. Jesus says in verse seven, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you will hear it sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, the definite article V is there in Greek and should be capital S, because now we're talking about the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit is the one. Now, he uses the analogy of the wind. This is why this is a great analogy. Do you have anything to do with the wind blowing? Nope. All you do is receive the power of the wind. See, so many of us are like, man, I'm so afraid of letting God down. Here's the good news. You're not holding him up. You're not holding him up. He's holding you up. 
And the only way you let him down is by failing to realize he's holding you up like the wind. Here's the good news. The wind is going to blow whether or not you had a good day or a bad day. The wind is going to blow whether or not you nailed it or failed it. Because it is a power beyond you and it is not limited by you. Because have you ever tried to limit it? Listen, we lived in, in South Texas. It's the windiest city in America. Everybody thinks it's Chicago. It's not. It's actually Corpus Christi, Texas. It averages more per mile, hour per mile, whatever. You know what I'm saying. It's the windiest. So windy, in fact, they would have the national windsurfing competitions there every year and kite surfing. It was fascinating to watch. You had to be careful because there'd be times you would open up your car door. And I saw this happen where it would bend the car door back to the front fender. It was so strong. So every time you open the door, because it's a more flat area, a lot less trees. And so there wasn't wind breaks. So you had to hold the door sometimes with both hands when you got out. I mean, so many dings on, on car doors and you park in the parking lots. I've always parked my truck, you know, try to be away. But in Corpus, I did it all the time because I knew this is going to be dings. Oh, that's a wind. But it's so powerful and you see the effects of it. And that's the analogy that Jesus uses of the spirit in your life. It's so powerful. It can blow open something. It's so powerful. It can generate such movement in your life. That was never possible prior to. That's the point that Jesus is getting at here. Now look at Nicodemus's response. Verse nine, like I told you, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness about what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. That's an important word. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? I believe that God works in mysterious ways. And on the way to church this morning, I was listening to a preacher preach. I don't even know his name. But the clip that I heard, he was talking about the difference between titles and testimony. And I instantly, I think, not I, the Holy Spirit instantly like just dropped it into my heart. Jason, that's what you need to talk about with Nicodemus. And I thought, what do you mean? And then I got here and I started studying this. I thought, oh, look at this. Nicodemus had titles. He was a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the Jews. And then Jesus just called him the teacher. So Nicodemus had spent his life chasing titles, but he didn't have a testimony of transformation. He spent his life chasing titles, being a Pharisee, being a ruler, being a teacher, being a rabbi, because in his community, that's what success was, titles. And here's what's interesting. The dude who built the temple, his name was Solomon, who helped institute through what God was doing in his father, David, the whole practices of the temple. He wrote a book called Ecclesiastes. And what he said in Ecclesiastes is chasing titles is like chasing after anybody know the wind. Hmm. Interesting. Chasing after the what? The wind. What did Jesus just say the Holy Spirit is like? 
the wind. Maybe you've been chasing after a power that can only come through a testimony of a transformation by the Spirit that you thought you could get by titles. Maybe you and I have been chasing all the things that we thought that would actually enable us to do it better this time. And Jesus says there's only one way. And he, he scolds Nicodemus and says, you're a teacher and you don't know this? Let me say it to you like this. You know how many religious people I have come into contact in over 20 years of pastoring that just want more information and yet their lives are not transformed? I can't tell you how many people that just love knowledge. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge makes you arrogant, but love makes you humble. Why do so many of us chase knowledge, even in the Christian realm? Because so many of us are like Nicodemus. We think that if we just know more, if we just had the titles, then we could have the transformation. No. And I can't tell you how many people in my experience have had all the information in the world, but yet they're the most arrogant people I've ever met. It's not the more you know, it is who you know. It's who you know. And that's a sobering thought, isn't it? You can have all the titles, but not have the transformation. You can have all the titles, but not have the testimony of a changed life. So here's what I'm saying to you. I mean, I hope you come and you listen and you hear the knowledge and you're like, man, that's great. I didn't know that. But I hope you leave thinking, man, but I didn't know that I needed to know him. So it wasn't more knowledge that I needed. It was a person that I needed. That is why so many people, listen, and I, we, I'm in the South, we in the South. How many people know stuff and yet they live their lives with no love because they don't have a testimony? See, Jesus said, Nicodemus, you're the teacher, but you don't accept our testimony. What is testimony? It's literally to testify. It means to tell a story. So you say, Nicodemus, you know all this stuff. You're the teacher, but you don't have a story. You know a bunch of stories, but you don't have a story. And that is the biggest danger that you and I can face in playing this dangerous game called church. And I've told you this before, what a lame hobby if you just want to come here and act like you got it all together and let everybody else think that you got it all together because you're the teacher. I want you to hear me say something. I want you to hear me say it loud and clear. The only reason I am a teacher today is because the testimony I have of Jesus changing my life when I was a teenager. That's it. It's not because I went to seminary. It's not because I studied communications in my undergrad. It's because I was lost and he found me. That is what qualifies me to tell you about who Jesus is. Now, is education bad and wrong? No, I got my education. I'm continuing to get my education. But it's got to be built on a testimony of Jesus changing my life. See, that's what Jesus is getting at. How do we know that? Look at the last 
three verses he says here. No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What in the world is Jesus talking about? You're talking about serpents in the wilderness, Jesus. And this is why Jesus says to Nicodemus, you didn't know this? What happened? Real quick. Again, you don't have to turn there, but you can read it later if you want a fascinating story. Numbers chapter 21, verses four through nine. Real quick recap. Easter, we talked about the Passover and how Jesus, or it was Jesus, but how God freed them from the slavery in Egypt, and now he was taking them into the promised land. And he took them to Mount Sinai, which is not the best way. It's supposed to be a 40-day journey, but because they grumbled, it turned into a 40-year one. And in their midst of complaining, which I know church people never do, but in their midst of complaining on the way to the promised land, God got tired of it. And he says, you want to complain against me and Moses? I'm going to send some serpents to bite you. Fascinating. Go read the story later. Numbers chapter 21. You're like, I thought God loved them. Why would he send them serpents? Here's why. Because when the serpents bit them, they were now infected with the venom. But God was doing that metaphorically to show them you're actually infected with the venom that is deadlier than that. It's called sin. So then they complain and they pray and they repent and they say to Moses, God, pray to God in our behalf. And this is what God does. He says, okay, Moses, craft a bronze serpent, put it up on a pole and lift it up. And everybody who has been bitten by the serpent, if they look to the serpent on the pole, they'll be healed. And they were. And then Jesus is saying in the same way, he must be lifted up. What in the world is that about? In the Bible, what does the serpent represent? The devil. And in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve weren't physically bit by the serpent, but they were spiritually bit by his lies. And that bite infected all of humanity. And so what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus is if you want to be born again, you need to look up to a new serpent on a pole. He was referring to himself. And if you, if you just want to do a quick Google later on, literally what Moses lifted up was like the shape of a cross with a snake on it. So they were saved by looking at the snake on the cross. You say, well, Jesus wasn't a snake. No, he wasn't. But what was he doing when he was on that cross? He was dying as though he was the snake. He was dying as though he had sinned. He was, he was dying as the personification of death. And if we look to that, we're healed. Let me go a step further. You know what's really interesting? Does anybody know? You don't have to say this out loud. I just want you to think about it. What the sign for medicine is? It's a pole with the serpent on it. Because in Greek mythology, that is how you were healed. Hmm, I wonder where the Greeks got that from. Let me say it to you like this. Today, if you want to be healed, I'm not saying that God is against modern medicine. Don't hear me saying that. But what I'm saying is you have a problem that's greater. Let me say it to you like this. It's very relevant. There's a virus in you that's deadlier than COVID. Deadlier than cancer. It's called sin. 
Because see, COVID can kill your body. But Jesus says in Luke 12, sin can kill your soul. So Jesus came to enable to happen through the Spirit what was not able to happen unless he died on a cross. So now when we look to him, we are healed. That's what Jesus was saying to, Moses, uh, to Nicodemus. And he was using the Old Testament to say, he says, your problem is you're not looking correctly. You're looking at your ability to do something that you're not able to do, and you need to look at my ability to do something that you cannot do, which is die in your place for your sin. And if you see me, if you look to me, I will take the punishment for your sin. And as a result, I will give you the spirit and the spirit will make you alive and cause you to do what you could have never done by yourself. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. There is no story like the gospel. Because every human, every belief system believes that we need a do-over, that we need a second chance. But the problem with something being called a second chance is without a second birth, we won't actually live out our second chance. Because we need to be born again, born from above, born by the Spirit. And that can only happen when we look at Jesus. If we look at Jesus, who took our place as the serpent on the cross to heal us from what we had been bitten by, which was sin, then we'll be saved. So God, I pray right now for anybody here that hasn't looked to Jesus and hasn't been born again, I pray right now you'd open their eyes to see the truth about who you are and they'd respond in faith and be saved. Nobody looking around or talking here as we close, but if you wanna trust Jesus, you can do it right now. You don't have to say this out loud, but you can pray with me. It goes like this. Say, Father, thank you for loving me. You sent Jesus in my place for my sin. I see now for the first time Jesus on the cross for my sin. And I ask you to put my sin on him and let him die in my place and put his spirit in me and calls me to be born again. I ask you to forgive me. Thank you for loving me. I'm trusting in Jesus alone. Now, if you just prayed to receive Jesus, to trust in Jesus for one of our locations, real quick, would you just simply lift up your hand so we can see that? Just lift it up, thank you. Just lift it up. We got men and women gonna walk around, put a gift in your hand. Don't be ashamed, man. Best day of your life, thank you. If you're watching online or in one of our locations in a moment, you'll have an opportunity to give us your information so we can know who you are. But in those of you who have trusted in Jesus, again, be reminded today that yes, God wants you to obey, but he is not asking you to obey him without him enabling you to do it through the power of his spirit. And so today you can be reminded of just how good God is, is that he will cause you to do it. So simply ask him, Father, help me to do this because I am born again and you have given me your spirit and enable me to do what I can't do. God, thank you for loving us. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.
Love you, church.